G'day, g'day, guys. Now, before we dive into today's show, I want to ask you a few quick questions. Are you looking to take your investing career to the next level? Are you wanting an accountability partner who will push you to achieve your goals? Are you needing to surround yourself with successful investors and entrepreneurs in order to up your game and take control of your life? Well, if you've answered yes to any of those questions, I am super pumped and excited to announce that I'm starting the Syndicator Incubator Mastermind Group. This mastermind is a group of highly motivated, abundance-orientated, hand-selected hustlers and entrepreneurs who are ready to take that next step in their investing career. We are now taking applications for the next group of champions. If you're interested to find out more, then email me at info, that's I-N-F-O, at reedgoosens.com and put in the subject line, The Syndicator Incubator. Being a part of this mastermind group, you will have unlimited access to both myself and my business partner, Andrew Campbell, and you will understand how we have been able to build a portfolio of over 1,200 units worth over $120 million in under 24 months, and we've achieved financial freedom in the process. There are once a month mastermind calls with the group and a yearly conference where you will learn from the best in the business. So what are you waiting for? There are only limited spots, so get your application pack by emailing me at info at reedgoosens.com. And remember, be bold, be brave, and go give life a crack. Residential is very linked to earnings. I mean, so if the economy goes down, well, you still have to live somewhere, don't you? Mm -hmm. And you still have to pay rent. So, so it's far less volatile and far more predictable, far more, uh, you know, uh, it, it's, it takes, you know, it's harder to get to the bigger numbers. It's hard to build the, you know, a uh, $10 billion fund just you have to have a lot more assets because they're smaller but it's but it's really a very good uh, good space to be in because it's home sweet home welcome to investing in the us a podcast for real estate investors business owners and aspiring entrepreneurs looking to break into the us market Join Reid as he interviews go-getters, risk-takers and the best in the business about their journey towards financial freedom and the sheer joy of creating something from nothing. G'day, g'day, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another cracking edition of Investing in the US podcast from Los Angeles. I'm your host, Reid Goosens. Good as always to have you with us on the show. Now, I'm glad that you've all tuned in to learn from my incredible guests, and each and every one of them are the cream of the crop here in the United States when it comes to real estate investing, business investing, and entrepreneurship. Each show, I try and tease out their incredible stories of how they have successfully created their businesses here in the US, how they've created financial freedom, massive amounts of cash flow, and ultimately created extraordinary lives for themselves and their families. Life by design, as I like to say. Hopefully, these guests will inspire all of my cracking listeners, which are you guys, to get off the couch and go and take massive amounts of action. If these guys can do it, so can you. Now, as you know, I'm all about sharing the knowledge with my loyal listeners, which is you guys, and there's absolutely no BS on this show, just straight into the nuts and bolts. Now, if you do like this 
show, the easiest way to give back is to give us a review on iTunes and you can follow me on Facebook and Twitter by searching at Reed Goosens. You can find this show wherever you podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher and Google Play. But you can also find these episodes up on my YouTube channel. So head over to reedgoosens.com, click on the video link and it will take you to the video recordings of these podcasts where you can see my ugly mug but the beautiful faces of my guests each and every week. All right, enough out of me. Let's get cracking and into today's show. Today on the show, I have the pleasure of speaking with Bob Fraser. Bob is on a mission to help investors take advantage of one of the most effective and overlooked avenues of real estate investing, which is residential mortgage notes. As founder and principal of Aspen Funds, Bob has purchased more than 1,000 notes, earning him and his company double-digit annual returns without the risk and volatility of the traditional investing options. I'm really pumped and excited to have him on the show today to share his incredible insight into the mortgage notes industry and really to share his background and experience with you all. So without further ado, um, Bob, welcome to the show. How are you doing today, mate? Great to be here. Mate, um, thanks for joining us. Uh, You're dialing in from Kansas City, is that right? Yes, sir. Awesome. Awesome, mate. Well, the first question I ask all my guests before they uh, before we dive into the nuts and bolts of today's show is, rewind the clock and tell me how you made your first ever dollar as a kid. <laughs> well, uh, peeling onions in a Japanese restaurant. Really? So, yeah. Yeah. So that's, I decided I didn't want to work in restaurants anymore after that. What, 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 what age were you? Uh, mid-teens? <laughs> uh, I, I think, yeah, I was probably, yeah, 14, I think. Yeah, and, it's... Uh, it's, they set down a 50-pound bag of onions in front of me with a knife. And set, it's amazing for, I think I was working for $1.25 an hour. Wow. It's amazing how many onions they got peeled for $1.25. <laughs> and I remember thinking, this is not the math <laughs> I, I, I want to have anything to do with in the future. You know? Well, but it's, it gives you a sense of the earn, what, what it takes to earn a dollar, right? And, and oh, what, it, it sure does. And, sure and does. those sort of, what I say, hard grafting type of, roles and jobs makes you realize okay i need to go out and use my brain not not a, not, be, exactly, not be a machine exactly what it did yeah exactly what it did it was actually a very positive experience in that sense exactly you know? I, I had a similar upbringing i remember telling my dad when i was laboring uh bu- building pools in the summer in australia and i 12 hour days backbreaking type of work in the heat and i was like i can't do it and he's like well that's why you're at university that's why you're getting an education so uh exactly. sort of pull your socks up and pay attention sort of thing so exactly so, so bob walk us through the journey of of how you where you've got through to today um and what really got you started along this entrepreneurial journey sure um yeah well i always kind of had an entrepreneurial itch but i became a computer programmer so i, was, I went to school for uh, computer programming at berkeley and uh did that for, for a few years and did super well in that, but it was a job, it was a W-2 job and always had a, um, you know, an entrepreneurial itch. And, and then uh, in 1995, I took the leap and I started a, um, a, uh, a tech business. Um, it was a super bad business plan, super bad idea, but I was able to convince mom to uh, put in money and uh, started this business while well, we ended up morphing and pivoting and ended up raising $44 million in venture capital for this business, ended up becoming the fastest growing business in the United States, in the Midwest region of the United States from the late 90s, and ended up winning the Ernst Young Entrepreneur of the Year Award in 2000 at 300 employees. So it was, it was a real rocket ship and kind of catapulted me into the world of finance and investments. And um, 
so that was a great experience, but also heartbreaking uh, because the thing ended, ended, it just completely blew up. And, and uh, so I learned a lot through that, that whole period, you know, being worth hundreds of millions of dollars and then to being worth zero um, overnight. And so it was very, very formative. And, and I, I, I kind of, you know, just went from a computer programmer, just a normal Joe, kind of a, you know, worker, you know, I guess a knowledge worker, but I, I wasn't a businessman to, you know, um, really being an investor and a smart, a smart investor, you know, uh, building investment, you know, uh, uh, pro products and that kind of thing. So awesome. And so how did it all blow up? Well, it was the dot-com crash right. in two, 2000. So we had not, we didn't make the IPO window. And, mm. you know, so, you know, people don't realize how, how fad driven investors are. And the next coolest thing, you know, you know, you're watching it now with the WeWork fiasco, you know, one, one minute you're a darling, the next minute, I promise you, if you're in, you know, co-work real estate, you can't raise a dime right now. It doesn't matter what your business model is. It doesn't matter how good it is. It's over. And that's what happened in, in 2000. It doesn't, it's just nothing mattered anymore. You know, uh, so people just bailed. And uh, so we missed the IPO window. And then the investors, all the venture capitalists, you know, I, you know there's so many different kinds of money. I, I've raised a lot of money in my days and there's all different kinds of money, different flavors. And all that money comes with different expectations and different time horizons. And I learned that venture capital, they have about a five-year time horizon. If they don't, you know, they don't, they don't see the exit that they think of in five years, you're, they're, they're done. They kind of walk out the back door right. and get rid of as much as they can, um, you know, or just liquidate as fast as they can. Uh, so, so it was just, a, again, a, it's just a shock for a guy who's just a normal, normal dude you know, to uh, grow up on this. It's so incredible that you've gone through from, from a normal dude, as you say, guy into starting this company worth worth a lot of money to then have it all evaporate overnight. I'm sure, I'm sure you would have gone to some pretty dark spaces in places during that transition. Oh yeah, ab absolutely. You know, anybody who's, I, I joke that, you know, my crater is bigger than yours and uh, you know, you know, there's not many people I know that have, that have had the, the, the ride I, I've had, but yeah, 2001. I mean, I, I mean, I was I was on the front page of the newspaper before wow. that, you know, and then and then I was on the front page of the newspaper after that, <laughs> <You know? laughs> and the people not returning your phone calls, and and you know, you're waking up, you know, just trying to not circle the toilet bowl that day, mm. you know, and uh, it's no fun for a guy who's pretty optimistic, and you know, it is definitely tough times. You know, anybody, you know, I'm, I'm sure a lot of your listeners, you know, went through, you know, crises and the, the last crises, you know, the 2008 crash and other things. And, you know, they're formative and good if we, if we let it, let it uh, properly impact us. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, psychologists say that, that one of the greatest predictors of success is resilience. Right. right. And it's being able to positively process through the challenges. So tell me what was the, the biggest mental challenge you faced and, and what advice do you give to someone who may not have gone through such a tra uh, traumatic time as such as yourself? Yeah, well, I mean, for sure, you know, it's having hope and, and, you know, not letting go of, Hey, you know, this is, 
there's, you know, better is yet to come and I'll get through this. So for sure, you have to have just mental fortitude right. to get, to get through these things, you know, but I, I learned a lot of things about money. I learned a lot of things about investors. I learned a lot of things about the type of money I wanted. I also learned a lot of things about the kind of market I wanted and, or the kind of investments I wanted. And I realized that, you know, I don't want to be in the public markets. I don't want to be involved in the public markets. And that's what kind of led me to real estate. Right. As something that's a little more predictable, a little more, a little more control. Yeah. And, and so that, that's, that's a great segue into the real estate space. So having such an incredible you know, shot to fame and then the massive crash of, of 2000.com, how did you pick your socks back up and, and get into the real estate space? What sort of time frame thereafter, 2001, were you looking then into real estate to start reinventing yourself? Well, I'm kind of a slow learner. <laughs> so, so I ended up starting a hedge fund, a public market fund in 2008, believe it or not, September of 2008. So again, timing, I have a gift of timing, um, <laughs> you know, and uh, so that didn't go well. And at that point really realized I did not want anything to do with public markets and, you know, the investment fads where valuations change overnight, this kind of thing. And so uh, met a partner who had discovered uh, mortgage notes. And this is a guy who had lost everything in the, in the real estate crash and realized that, you know, the people that were winning were the people on the debt side, the debt side versus mm. the equity side of real estate, right? The banks don't really lose that much usually, you know, now obviously they can, but, but if you do it right, the debt guys are the guys who win. And so he had started looking into and um, researching um, this uh, residential note market and had come up with some really amazing strategies. And uh, I was at the time looking for something outside the public markets that just, <laughs> I wanted nothing to do with any more public market valuation exercises. And so it was a, a match made in heaven. So we started this business and, uh, um, you know, really haven't looked back in the note space. Much, much better, much right, better. Right, and so talk to us a little bit about why you choose the resi market over the commercial market for, for note investing. And really, what's the difference there? It's incredibly different. Um, um, you know, residential real estate is fantastic, uh, but it's very cap rate driven. So it's very driven by, by interest rates and by... Um, uh, institutional investors. So it's very, very linked to the economy. Um, uh, residential is very linked to earnings. I mean, so if the economy goes down, well, you still have to live somewhere, don't you? Mm -hmm. And you still have to pay rent. So, so it's far less volatile and far more predictable, far more, uh, you know, uh, it, it's, it takes, you know, it's harder to get to the bigger numbers. It's hard to build the, you know, a $10 billion fund, just you have to have a lot more assets because they're smaller, but it's, but it's really a very good, uh, good space to be in because it's home sweet home. Right. Um, people have to live. And, uh, and, and uh, so there's a, there's a lot of great opportunities in uh, residential. And when you say residential, you and when I say residential, at least I'm meaning four units and under, right? Like, cause you can have yes. commercial multifamily, which is also residential, but it's commercial. Like it, it's, a, right. it's a multifamily exactly. asset. Yeah. It's, you know, hundred units. So um, yeah. it's very interesting that you say that because it is what everyone, you know, in 2008, that's what everyone got stuck up on, right? Everyone's trying to buy these homes at this debt, these ninja loans of no income, no job, right. and they're over leveraged to the wazoo. And all of a sudden they can't pay it back. 
So yeah. in that instance, how are you as the, you know, we've talked about the debt side being the more protective side. How are you, yeah. how, how do you navigate that space if you've got people who just walking in and handing in keys and say, I, I, I foreclose, foreclose me, I don't care. Yeah, well, we're the bank. So we're the ones, we're the, we're the lien lord in that point. So, so we're the ones foreclosing. Um, and, and, and I think, you know, yeah, we saw a big run up due to speculation, speculation and ninja loans, as you're talking about shoddy underwriting and really, you know, shoddy securitization um, happening. So we saw a lot of run up in the, in the prices of homes and a lot of that kind of thing. But honestly, it's not happening now. And, it, and, I, and it's not going to happen, in my opinion. You know, we, it's so funny. We always are protecting ourselves from the last crisis. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? But the next crisis is never like the last crisis, right? <laughs> <laughs> and so everybody is so terrified of the 2008 happening again. I promise you it's never going to happen again because everybody's looking for that. It's, it's, the, it's the new crisis is always going to be different than, that, than the next one. But, the, you know, our, our home prices way out of whack right now. And, and I would argue from about a dozen different standpoints, no. I do mm -hmm. economic research on these things. Our company does these, this significant investment in economic research. The homeowner is, is quite well, do you know, in a, on a, uh, uh, a inflation-adjusted basis, homes are, I think, 12% uh, below the, 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 the peak. This is, this is a, a, the, average, the average American home you're talking about, right? Yes. Yep. yep. Yes. Sorry. And, and uh, the homeowner, the debt to income ratios are, are, are very low. Homeowner is very, uh, very healthy. Uh, foreclosures are very low. So, and underwriting standards are still very high. So all these things, I'm, I'm, I'm arguing that I don't think houses are overpriced, especially in, in the Midwest, more Midwest regions, United States and geographically as well as the fact that single family homes have been massively underbuilt for the last 15 years. Mm -hmm. No new, very little new single family construction. And I, I, again, I can show you all the charts on this, but it's, uh, you know, it, it just a huge shortage of single family homes. And so again, I'm just not seeing that gonna, we're not gonna see a crash like we saw before. And, and I just, for maybe we can just, you said some really great golden nuggets there, because I want to maybe dive a little bit into that. Can you maybe just explain to the listeners in your opinion, you talked about the underwriting. We, I mentioned ninja loans. So, how did the the change and and this so this uh, uh, PTSD, I'll, I'll call it, from two thousand and eight, change the way in which we underwrite today, which is making it more fundamentally safer? Uh, in your opinion, that we won't see the same recession like we saw in two thousand and eight. Sure. Well, and as you pointed out, you know, it was home underwriting, shoddy underwriting. Um, you know, with the ninja loans, you can get, I, I, I've heard that you can get ninja loans, but I haven't seen them. They're certainly not very common if, if they, if they are at all there. Um, for example, in 2006, about, um, 50% of, of the, uh, 50 of the originations were in the 500, uh, below 700 FICO today, only 20% are mm. below 700 FICO. So just if you look at the originations, the lowest FICOs being underwritten in 2006 was around the 540 range. Today, it's around 620 range, the lowest, the lowest FICOs that are being approved for standard loans. So, so the underwriting is, is far, far uh, better 
at this time, you know, and, far more conservative. And do you have any opinions on the Dodd-Frank, you know, regulations that came into place? Are you of the school that this, those need to be loosened or you, you like them, how they, the fact that we did fall into a ditch and we now have slapped ourselves over the wrist with these restrictions in order to make it harder which for lenders. Which part of Dodd-Frank? Well, there's so, there's so much of it, you know, in terms of how much banks need to have on hand, in terms of uh, there has been murmurs in the markets that needs people banks need to loosen up with their lending criteria. Are you of that school of thought that, yes, we need to loosen up or we're, we're, on, we're going to stay the course with these, you know, better FICO scores, better underwriting, better making sure that we're not going to shoot ourselves in the foot round two, back to what uh, we're honestly, talking Honestly, being in the mortgage market, I, I think it's pretty healthy right now. You know, if you want to, you know, you want to get an out-of-the-box loan, you can get them mm. and you can, you can pay 8% for non-conforming loans. Uh, so it feels to me like it's pretty balanced. All in all, I think Dodd-Frank should probably be repealed. <laughs> you know, the, you know, the capital requirements are, are uh, you know, was good. Um, you know, the bank capital requirements, you know, I don't, people, people don't realize, you know, in, in Europe, you know, 20 years ago, banks only had to have about 1% of their capital, mm -hmm. um, you know, <laughs> against their assets. It's insane, right? right. In, in America, we've always been around 12%. And, um, and so it's very conservative. Our banks are really not in trouble right now. I like that. Um, you know, I, I think they, you know, the, you know, the Dodd-Frank, the one thing I think that should have been implemented, you know, we're, we're getting into, you know, my, my opinions for sure, but it right. was never implemented was the Volcker rule separating banks from investment banks. And, hmm. you know, and, and, you know, look, if you're lending on someone's home, you shouldn't be rolling the dice on your own portfolio as a hedge fund. Right. Right. And so the Volcker rule should have been implemented. And this one, for whatever reason, they never they never had the had the, uh, the stones to do it. I'm interrupting this episode to remind you guys about the Syndicator Incubator Mastermind Group. If you want to take your investing career to the next level and surround yourself with the best in the business, then apply today. Spots are filling up fast. I'm only taking a handful of people for the next round. So get your application by emailing me at Info, I-N-F-O, at reedgoosens.com. Remember, be bold, be brave, and go give life a crack. Now, back into the show. Let's talk a little bit about, you. you we spoke about the old crisis, right? In the mortgage sector, is there going to be a new crisis coming up in, in terms of lending? And I'm not just talking about house lending, I'm talking about other debt, the debt crisis that could happen in terms of, we spoke, you briefly mentioned the... Um, uh, the WeWorks of the world and these overvaluations and, and, and that sort of commercial industry debt that is we're, we're saddling up with. Do you, do you have any opinions on that? Yeah, I, I think, I think, you know, there's, uh, you know, trouble brewing in the, uh, you know, the student loan world, but who's, who's not to say that we don't get Bernie Sanders elected and it all, you know, all evaporates tomorrow. Right. It's paid right, off, right, you right. know? So the next crisis is always hard to predict, right? <laughs> you know, we're always we're always predicting the last one is going to mm. repeat itself, but that for sure doesn't happen. Right. Okay. Right. Um, that's the only way we can be sure of is what's not going to happen. Interesting. Um, but yeah, you know, I, I think that I I think that you know public market valuations are in certainly nosebleed area. You know, you know certainly you know commercial real estate multifamily has it ever has the cap rates ever been lower no. in some of these multifamily sectors you know i would i would be building and selling into those markets i wouldn't be buying in those markets um so i, I think there's there's a bit of a bubble in some of those you know cap rate driven places uh 
you know, but on, on the other hand, I also think the economy is going to continue to be strong for a while. Right. So um, I don't think there's imminent risk. Yeah, no, it's interesting. You, you, you spoke briefly about the, um, the lack of new single family housing on the other, oh, yeah. on the other side of the coin, there's been so much multifamily housing being exactly. built because of the way in which we're changing our demographics of where we want to live. We want to live closer to downtowns. We want to live closer to works. We don't want to commute as much anymore. All this sort of this lifestyle over, you know, having this, you know, American dream of owning your own house. So, uh, and, that, and that's not going just about America. Like oh, I come from Australia, same things happening in Aussie, same right. things happening in, in, in Europe. It's, Wages aren't keeping up, but the cost of living is going through the roof. You don't have to spend two hours in the car commuting to and from work and then go somewhere else for uh, for groceries and all that sort of stuff. So we're definitely seeing a change in the way which we as humans interact and house. And, and I think that's where you've seen the multifamily, which has forced cap rates to be lower. Um, how does that... I, I think we are also in a very much a frothy bubble for multifamily because that's the, the market I'm in. So it's interesting to see where that next cycle is going to hit. And, 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 and I yeah. think right now um, there's, there's a flight, a lot of flight of capital uh, to the multifamily markets because of the cash flow and the appreciation, sure. and, you know, the, the balance yeah. of both. But in your opinion, what do you have anything to add to that in terms of that type of the frothiness we're seeing in, in the, in particular yeah. multifamily you market? Know, again, I'm a, I, I study global markets. Mm -hmm. Well, if you look at one of the biggest forces on the planet right now is these negative interest rates coming out of Europe, Yep. you know, as well as all the, the money printing coming out of Japan, People's Bank of China, et cetera. And so if you're, if you, if you're, you're got a, you're in a European investor, you're run a pension fund and you're, you're staring at negative 1% interest rates. You got to, you got to pay the bank to, hold, to well, hold it. Yeah. You're going to do anything, but buy that bond, you're going to look at currency swaps, and then you're going to start scanning the markets for any kind of return you can get. And multifamily looks good. And, right. and it, it does, you know, I, you know, um, but, but the problem is a, a small change in cap rate means a huge change in valuations. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, it's, it's riskier, but people are willing to take that in the, in the face of negative interest rates. You know, so uh, the, I, I think it's bringing, it's causing all boats to float. Right. And meaning all fixed income investments, including bonds, everything else just, just goes up because of this tide of money, you know, from Europe and, um, and, and Asia. To try and get a bit of yield somewhere. Is that what that's, you're, right. that's essentially what you're saying. That's right. So I know I know you're in the, the mortgage, but I'd lo I do love your, your your thoughts on on where we're headed. Do you think we're in a low to zero interest rate market, or do you think we're going to rebound and, and get back to the days of uh, four, five, six percent? And I actually I actually make an economic forecast. I update it quarterly for my uh, my clients, um, but. Yeah, I, I believe that we are in a low interest rate environment um, for the foreseeable future, to be honest, Reed. Mm -hmm. And the reason is this. So what happened is we traditionally, traditional economics, when you have easy money policies, it creates overheating in the economy and inflation, right? Right. And what happened in 2009, when they responded with these incredible, I think the US, they purchased $3.7 trillion worth of bonds, the Federal Reserve did, printing money, basically mm -hmm. monetizing the debt. Mm -hmm. No hyperinflation. Explain that. Right. You look at the same thing and, you know, um, you know Mario did it in, uh, in the ECB, the, the Japan is still printing money. I think they own something like 80% of the country's ETFs, believe it or not. This, wow. this, 
the Bank of Japan. It's insane. Where's the hyperinflation? Well, here's the hyperinflation. The hyperinflation, all that money has been flowing into assets. So you're seeing housing prices, multifamily, everything going up. But we it hasn't translated into consumer prices. Mm. Okay, so you so you, let's, let's, let's let's have two kinds of inflation, right? There's asset price inflation and there's consumer price inflation, right? One we don't call inflation, right? It's asset prices. We like it when the stock market goes up, right? When our house prices goes up, when our multifamily thing goes up, you know, we don't like it when our price of milk goes up and beef and these things, right? Rent. Well, here's here's the deal. Since you know, since uh, you know, 2000, we have systemic uh, deflationary forces at work in consumer prices. So if if you look at wage wage deflation is dramatic due to globalization right. and due to automation, right? You know, I just went to McDonald's the other day, and they've now got a a, a digital kiosk to order. <laughs> I mean, you know, jobs are disappearing because of automation. They're now you know. Uh, I've got a son who works at a gold mine and they're replacing all the trucks with self-driving trucks, disappearing three drivers per truck, three shifts, 24 hour shift. That's $300,000 a year in savings for one truck. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Wow. I mean, so, so wage disinflation, right? Then you've got energy disinflation. When you look at, you know, do you know who is, who the largest oil producer in the world is today? Uh, America is it? It is America. Huh. We took we took over in 2013 number one producer of oil. Well, what happened was the fracking and horizontal drilling revolution. It's technology. What happens when that technology is deployed in the giant and super giant fields in Russia, in Siberia, in Saudi Arabia? I promise you, we've seen the end of hundred dollar oil forever. Do you think it'd be less uh, not, than that? Not only to mention the fact that the oil consumption, for example, in America, now in China, it's still growing, but in America, it's flat. Mm. Our oil, oil consumption is actually fairly flat and conservation is working. And then you look in technology again, I'm a technologist, I'm a computer scientist, right. apologize for my nerdiness. <laughs> I love it. But love it. you look at a guy named Jonathan Goodenough, just won the Nobel prize uh, for chemistry. He's the inventor of the lithium ion battery. He just won the Nobel prize for a new battery called the solid state battery. Has, has three times the power density and instantaneous charging. You plug the battery in, it's charged. Wow. It'll change, there, it'll be the end. You've, you have seen the, the beginning of the end of gasoline powered automobiles. Yep. I believe by the time you're an old man, there will be, you will t- recall the days when automobiles had gasoline engines. I, I completely agree. I completely it's, agree. It's so, guy, it, it, the end of high priced oil, you look at, you know, the biggies on consumer price inflation is food, energy, and wages. I just hit wages and energy. Food, we're having massive disinflation in food because, again, of technology. We're seeing the, the number of hectares uh, per in the world being harvested going down, but we're seeing the productivity per hectare going up right. dramatically. And that's we're really important. Technology In Brazil, they're doing three harvests per year on, on the same piece of land. You know, because of technology. So, bottom line, is that stuff going to reverse anytime soon? No. Right. And so we're we're seeing. I believe we're we've seen the end of high consumer price inflation. Well, that's the gating factor that keeps interest rates from being raised. Right. If consumer price inflation begins overheating, 
that's when the, all the banks will, the federal grant, the, the, you know, uh, the global uh, banks uh, will start raising interest rates. But we're not seeing it. Mm. So there's no price to pay. Let's have easy money until it hurts. Well, it doesn't hurt yet. And, and w- so when will hurt. it, when, so when will it? going to continue easy money policies and it's going to continue increasing the tide where all boats float, meaning asset prices, including the stock market, by the way. And, and so when will it start to hurt, in your opinion? When will it stop? No, so when, when will it start to hurt? You, you talk about the, the low interest rate environment. When will low interest rates start to hurt us? Yeah, you know, it's that's hard to see. You know, I'm looking at some of the, you know, watching the, the election, you know, uh, of the, you know, the, the Democratic, uh, you know, figures. Side of and, the party, yep. You know, with their kind of insanity of, you know, I think I, think I saw Elizabeth Warren's you know, uh, Medicare for all, I believe it was $54 trillion in costs, you know, you know, and by the way, you're from Australia, you know, we have you know, it. <laughs> is, the, is the medicine, is the medicine more primitive in Australia? No, you know? not, no. no. Yeah. And yet it costs, I think four times around four times to get a hip replacement in America than it does in a place like Australia. What's going on? Right. So the answer is not just no, there's, there's fundamentals forth. there, and we we can get into you know all of that. Yeah. But but and, and so anyhow, I I see I, I see you know there could be real problems if the 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 spendthrifts come in and just you know really start you know I mean just let's spend money like crazy and and because the truth is they can probably get away with it right now because our economy is so good and because we are having systemic deflation, the truth is our government can spend a lot of money right now and it won't be onerous even if they printed it right um so certain sooner or later some you know public figures are going to figure that out and they're going to start you know know, helicoptering money from to the to the populace in some form and that will probably not go well and and you bring up a very interesting point which is you you spoke about short-term you know debt cycles and long-term debt cycles but also the productivity is very important that as technology grows and you being a technology buff essentially our productivity our productivity increases even with jobs oh, yeah, losing we're automating and yes globalization has occurred but automation has also occurred through technology that's right and, and that is where productivity continues to of course someone you know f- fires three employees for one truck when you can just automate them you know it, it's that the productivity is clearly going to go up um so so when the productivity continues to go upwards that is when your out product, you know, I can then go and get that product for and pay product for when the credit is, is, is low and cash is low, is higher because if through printing money, um, I can still exchange for goods and services and keep not a job but but a but but innovation going for a higher productivity over the long term. That's exactly right. And, and, and GDP equals population times productivity. Right. So there's two ways to increase GDP. It's increased population, mm-hmm. right? If if we had just one person in America, we'd have pretty low GDP, you know. <laughs> right. Uh, or increase productivity and productivity is increasing. Which is which that. is where the which is where we get into the whole um with with you know oh well I'm going to replace you know your your son who's got replaced with with a truck and how did how did then where does he go right and where does he get fed right. and where does he get housed and where does he you know go to school and all that sort of stuff and and that's where we're really trying to grapple as society and this is not just in America this is across the world with this globalization type of mantra and and how do we reinvent ourselves as as a human so it's, race it's, it's it's a big deal you know you're Huge you're a young man and your generation has got to solve some of these problems. Mm-hmm. You know, I personally believe we need to 
we need to make the junior colleges free. Hundred percent. You know, I I, I want to I want to write a platform for the politicians. You, know, <laughs> you should kind of a middle of the road platform. It's just really we can afford free junior college, which helps people get uh, you know learn small engine repair yep. or HVAC repair or or a nursing or some job where they've got a skill that a computer cannot do. And, and you, you're completely and, correct. Like, cause you look at somewhere like Germany where they've had trade school is a thing, like you're coming out of yeah. high school. It's, it's, you know, in Australia a little bit as well. Um, it's okay to go get a trade. Like you don't have to go to university right. and this whole pedestal putting university six figures worth of debt, blah, blah, blah. So you've got to look at fundamentally back to your uh, comment about the, the, the free healthcare. It's a fundamental thing about, to your point, why does a hip replacement cost me three times as much in, in America than it does in Australia? There's fundamental right. issues. And, and, and to your point of like, how do we, one, re-engage with the people who have been disenfranchised through loss of job and all that sort of stuff through high... Uh, house prices through you know gentrification globalization to then re-entrain them to to have a skill that is not going to be replaced by a computer it's very we important to, we have to figure that out and to me the junior colleges are a big part of that right you know and uh and, and the world's getting the world's not getting smaller right <laughs> more people are coming more mouths to feed there's more uh right. so, so it's, a, it's a huge time in our lives where Ooh. we're Ooh. facing and we, we've sort of gone off a bit of a tangent but i like the fact we've gone off a bit of a tangent because it is fundamental to how we're successful investing and how we how we you know, plan for our future and all this sort of stuff absolutely so, um and the, and, and i did, forgot to even mention that you know your generation is getting is getting older and 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 we will live you know by the time i'm your age passing a hundred surpassing a hundred may not be as as a uh, centurion as they call them may not be as uh as that's a, right as as, right. as 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 uncommon as one would think so um, that means longer healthcare. That means you're more years of unemployment. You know, how are you going to support that? So huge, fa- how do we all, fa- you know, there's no solutions and I'm not, I don't plan, I don't have the answers nor do you, but we can we can have conversations about it. And I think that's where it's got to start. And, and, and I think there are solutions. I just think we don't know what they are. I exactly. think we've got to put our heads together and stop arguing and <laughs> and start, you know, work on these things, Right. you know, right. And, and there's better healthcare solutions. I, I know Switzerland is way ahead of America, and so is Norway and other things. With it's actually cheaper, it's higher quality. I'm not super familiar with Australia, but I think the same. Right. We need to learn as America. We need to learn and study those systems and take the best parts of them. Right. Where's the you know we need a scientific, a, 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 a nonpartisan conversation about this. You right. Know, and, so, and exactly, you know. and we won't we won't solve it all in, on this podcast, mate. But look, <laughs> no. I, I've I've really enjoyed the conversation um, with with you today. Uh, I want to be do be respectful of your time. One thing we do at the end of every show is we go into our lightning round of five questions. Are you ready to dive into them? Sure. Mate, what is the daily habit you practice to keep on track towards your goals? Most important uh, moment in my day is my coffee. My co- <laughs> coffee is the key to success, um, and and in the in the European mode of drinking coffee, which is to sit quietly and stare out your window with with a light conversation. And uh, so I, I, I'm a coffee fanatic, and. Uh, that's my that's my daily discipline. Love it, and, uh, and I'm sure it's a, a moment in your day to take a little bit of peace and quiet before you you dive into the emails and the the technology side of it, <laughs> right? Uh, who's been the most influential person in your career to date? Yeah, well, for my me, it's probably quite a bit different. It was two gentlemen that I hired that worked for me, hmm. my my big tech company. They were my president and my CFO, 
I learned, I learned everything I know today about management from people who worked for me. I was a terrible manager and, uh, and I became a good manager by watching what they did. And my CFO, same thing. I, I got a financial education by being mentored by a guy who worked for me. Wow. That's awesome. And it probably takes a little bit of uh, swallowing that pill to, to take uh, education from somewhere or, or admitting that you don't, you're not good at a skill and you go out and learning that skill from someone who's an employee. So well yeah, done. Yeah, I think that's, isn't that a key to success though, is <laughs> being able to learn no matter what, right? Exactly. If you stop learning, you stop growing. So that's right. Exactly. Uh, being in technology, and I'd like, this question is going to be hopefully a good one for you, is what tool, what, what's a tool in your business now? And it could be software or it could be a hardware, a hardware related What's the most influential tool that you use on a daily basis? Well, we've, we're fully uh, digit, uh, di digital company. We use uh, Salesforce to manage all of our database of notes, but, but probably the most influential tool that I use is a, is a tool called Power BI Power from Microsoft. BI. It's Power Business Intelligence, and it's this incredible, you know, you can aggregate data from, I aggregate data from my accounting package, from my loan servicers, from Salesforce and to slice and dice your data and to do analytics real time. It's just insanely powerful and it's, it's tiddlywinks to buy. I mean, because they have a free version, you know, and it's, it's, it's just mind blowing. I, I show people, you know, the analytics and the level of understanding I have of my portfolio. And it just, it's just truly mind blowing the level of control and insight that you can get from using one of these tools. That's awesome. So Power BI, is that right? Power Business Intelligence. Power Business Intelligence. Okay, well, I've never heard of that. I have to give it check, check it out. And it's a Microsoft a product, up, right? Yeah. Awesome. Um, what's been the biggest failure in your career to date, and what's the 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 one sentence or the one takeaway from that failure that you can bestow? Well, I think we we uh, we talked about that the the, the Beginning. tech business, and I learned that smart money is not always smart, um, especially in the long run. <laughs> I learned the fickleness of the stock market and public investments and how fad driven they are. And that's when I decided to get into real estate and especially the debt side, which is far less volatile and far more predictable. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I think that's, it's a, you've had an incredible journey to say the least and, and amount of lessons. I, I, would, I could sure I could speak to you for hours and hours and hours on, on your thoughts on the economy and where we're headed. But Bob, um, where can people reach you to continue the conversation? They want to get a little bit more in your sphere, understand what you do in the note mortgage business. Uh, where do they go? Uh, go to Aspen funds, like the tree F U N D S dot U S. And if, if you like, I can also uh, uh, have a page uh, for you for you in your show notes to, with my economic presentation, yes. my deck, um, and show you my current thinking about the economy. You, you know, I, you know, I'm a firm believer. Having gone through two cycles mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and paying the price, I'm I'm a firm believer in paying attention to the big cycles. So yes. the, the waves, I don't care about, but the tides, I care a lot about. And 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 the and the funny thing is, the waves are not very predictable, but the tides are very very predictable. I'd love to. And I'd love so, to see it. So that's what I pay attention to, and I, I write about it to, for my investors. And I'm, I'm determined to be on the right side of the tides um, <laughs> as they come in today. Awesome. So we'll, we'll 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 prepare something for your for your uh, wonderful listeners in the show notes. Yeah, and and we'll have again, as you said, we'll have it in the show notes and available for for listeners as well. Perfect. But but Bob, I want to thank you so much for jumping on the show today. I, I just want to reflect some of the things that I took away because I was madly writing down notes, and and I think. 
the biggest takeaway for me is 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 your resilience um, and how you've, you've you've been able to morph over the years from from a from a tech startup into understanding the ins and outs of smart money and and, and smart money might not might not necessarily be actual smart money um, and, and understanding where you get your money from, but the capital markets, uh, so the public markets or from the private sector in terms of being on the debt side and um, and understanding the ba- the value of being on the debt side rather than the equity side. And, and I think that the real thing that you've, it's probably what's come out of this as you reflect on your life is the gift of the timing of the market. You know, you spoke Absolutely. about that you've crashed into 2001 and then you started a hedge fund company in 2008. Like, it's it's you know fool me once shame on you fool me twice shame on on, on me so um it's 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 really interesting to to just open crack open a little bit of inside that brain of yours to see what you know because you do have years of experience over me and and most of my listeners and it's people like yourself that we need to look towards to see what's coming down the track to understand uh how do we you know how do we we avoid the, the tides um from receding or how do we make sure we're not that boat that uh you know as they say all boats rise in all tides so we're not caught with our pants down so uh, right. really important exactly. but do i leave anything out i think i think you've covered it so well and uh you know wish your listeners the best it's it's awesome uh you know and and i think there's there's money to be made and there's you know the interesting thing is it doesn't matter what time it is there's mm-hmm. always an opportunity you just have to know what it is and you have to look at you know what are the best opportunities today and it's usually not yesterday's, you know. So yeah. <laughs> exactly, the great life. show, by the way. Love your show. Thank you so much. Well, well, Bob, I want to thank you again for taking the time to join us on the show. Enjoy the rest of your week, and we will catch up very, very soon. All right, sounds good. Thank you very much. Well, there you have another cracking episode, jam packed with some incredible advice and tips from um, from Bob and and all that he's learnt over the years. And uh, if you do have any um, questions for Bob and his team, please head over to AspenFunds.com, and all those yeah. show notes will be uh, all the links in the show notes will be in the show notes, and we'll make sure we get our hands on one of Bob's um, economic outlook markets because I think that'll be really bloody good good bedtime reading. <laughs> uh, I want to thank you all again for taking some time out of your day to continue to grow your financial IQ because that is what we're all about here on this show. And we're going to do it all again next week. So be bold, be brave, and remember, go give life a crack.